0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 193 with Dr. Britt Andrietta. Brit has a wealth of neuroscience research and insights about what it takes to flourish at work, which is what we're all about here. So you're going to walk away learning, one, why our brains are not built for today's workplaces, two, the fundamental conditions required for teammates to thrive, and three, best practices for developing trust within your team. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we reference here. You can find those over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep193. Now, here's Britt's story. Dr. Britt Andrietta knows how to harness human potential. Drawing on her unique background in leadership, psychology, education, and the human sciences, she has a profound understanding of how to unlock the best in people. Britt is the former chief learning officer at linda.com and has over 25 years of experience consulting with Fortune 100 corporations, businesses, universities, and nonprofit organizations. Dr. Andrietta is the author of several titles on learning and leadership. Their online courses have over 4 million views and her books are bestsellers. Her latest book, Wired to Resist, The Brain Science of Why Change Fails and The New Model for Driving Success is available now. And her next book on the neuroscience of teams, Wired to Connect, will be out in spring 2018. Now, here's Britt. Britt, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: Thank you, Pete. I'm really excited to uh, talk to you and connect with your audience.
0: Oh, me too. And I think we are of like mind with some of this good stuff. So I'm excited to jump in. But first, I want to hear about your jumping history on the ice. (laughs) What's the story with you and competitive ice skating?
1: Oh, my gosh. I recently talked about this because, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was a competitive ice skater from the age of eight to 18, and I did triple jumps and I trained at the Lake Placid and Colorado Springs Olympic Training Centers, Um, you know, did all that. And then I had an injury, so I wasn't able to continue. So I went off to college and figured out my new life and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, fast forward to, to two years ago and a rink opened in our town here in Southern California. And so I bought myself a new pair of skates and have been skating. I just go out and and skate for fun. And what's funny is, (laughs) I mean, muscle memory is a real thing, people. Like, my muscles remember how to do stuff. The problem is I don't actually have muscles, but I have muscle memory. So (laughs) Uh I'm out there doing spins and at least single jumps, and it's kind of fun to do.
0: Oh, that is fun. Cool. Well, I... Never quite mastered the ice skating. I I think I would always tie the laces too tight or not tight enough. And then my, my feet would end up hurting. So, so kudos to you that uh, you, you excelled and, and you're, and you're back at it again. That's really cool.
1: Well, give it another try, Pete, because um, now ice rinks have these really fancy skates with memory foam oh, wow. and even heated, heated skates. There's like, <laughs> it's come a long way since, <laughs> since since we were kids. So maybe give it another chance.
0: Only the finest of heated skates <laughs> will meet my standards. <laughs> That's good. Well, I was so intrigued digging into your work. And I liked you mentioned that a lot of your work sort of stems from this this thesis or core belief, which was very tantalizing for me, is that most of today's workplace problems stem from trying to make human beings work in ways that we're simply not built to do. Can you give us an example or two of that that you see all over the place?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it really comes down to a lot of issues we see in the workplace. Um, but one of the ways I try to remember this is if you go back to how we were when we lived on the plains and tribes together, I mean, our body is wired to do three things. Survive, right? So there's a bunch of our biology that's dedicated to helping us scan for danger and fight the foe and and survive to live another day. Right behind that is belonging, finding a meaningful community, learning how to be with others, building meaningful relationships. And when and and the third one we can only get to when those first two are taken care of. And that's um, become, you know, become our best selves, grow into who we're meant to be. And what's funny is workplaces expect humans to show up every day and be our best selves and do our best work while at the same time messing with stuff that triggers our surviving and belonging needs. So, for example, you know, change is happening so fast in workplaces today, um, faster than human bodies can really keep up with it. And so we are getting a real thing called change fatigue showing up in the workplace. And and that can be addressed and handled if leaders understand biology and roll out change a little differently differently. Um, So we can we can work with the human body. But I see a lot of issues in the workplace where we don't. Performance reviews is another Mm -hmm. way we don't work well. The brain has certain ways that it's motivated and marks reward and seeks reward. And nothing about the modern performance management system really aligns with that. (laughs) So um, even how we onboard people how we do learning and training events. Um, the the human brain can really only track about 20 minutes of content before it needs to process it, to push it into short and learn, long-term memory. And yet I will go to events where someone is talking at people for an hour, hour and a half before there's a break or an activity or a discussion. So I could go on and on. I mean, <laughs> I could give you a hundred examples, um, but really it comes down to kind of ignoring some of the ways in which we're wired. And so that's why I like to bring this message to the workplace because with some small tweaks, wow, man, you can start bringing out the best in people and that only helps the organization thrive.
0: Oh, that is exciting stuff. And I love it when a small tweak makes a big difference. So Britt, please stop us at about 20 minutes for an exercise (laughs) or a question or a something. We'll try to walk our talk today.
1: Okay, sounds good.
0: Very cool, well, so I want to dig in particular now into a lot of your work recently has been in the realm of neuroscience and the new discoveries and research that 's coming out, and how that applies to teams, collaborations at work and such. So could you give us an overview of you know how you're learning and understanding this new body of work?
1: Yeah, 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 so my fascination with neuroscience started. Um, you know, started with me doing some research into learning because my my background is learning and development. Uh, even my PhD is on learning, education, uh, education, um, organizations, and leadership. And so I started there because I was just trying to improve my craft. And I learned so much that I ended up writing my first book, which is on neuroscience of learning. It's called Wired to Grow. And then I was working for a company that went through a, a major acquisition. And in the middle of that, I realized everything we knew about change was wrong. So mm. I studied change. And then this third area of research, which I just premiered in May and and is going to be the subject of my third book, is all about teams, right? Because so much work is being done in teams now all around the world. And there really is some biology about how we work well in teams. So I'll give you a few highlights. Um, One of the cool things is is that we achieve this thing called neural coupling. And when people work together together, Our brains sync up and and they sync up in two key ways. One is as we're engaging and talking to each other and collaborating, the same regions of our brain light up at the same times. And then in addition, our brainwave patterns, which can be very unique to us, actually align and you start to see that the brainwave patterns have mirrored each other and are almost identical when the team is working really well.
0: Oh, you know, it's wild. <laughs> yeah,
1: so, so this synchrony happens, and it, we're really on the front edge of this. Like, the s- scientists don't really understand how it happens, but we can see that it does happen. Um, but what we know is that it happens better and faster when there's a couple things in place. And one of them is psychological safety, which is a sense that people feel like they can take risks and be themselves and make mistakes and that they won't be rejected or ridiculed by the group. Uh, So that makes sense, right? You know, we're going to work better if we're not in some level of fear for our sense of survival or belonging. And then the second thing is that we've built trust. And trust is something that takes a little time to build. Um, but when groups of people have time to start to build those relationships, what we see is then those teams drop into this neural synchrony much faster and they are much more effective working together. Um, and it's, it's measurable. It's measurable on brain scans. And another couple cool things is that um, we naturally kind of scan for us versus them or not sorry, not us versus them, but like me versus we like, am I working on my own or am I part of something? So it's a me, we sort. But what's interesting is that organizations sometimes play on that in the wrong way and they set up people in competitive situations and they turn it into an us versus them. And me, we is a good sort. But if you go to us versus them, all kinds of bad things happen and it ultimately harms people's ability to work together. And it can it can really bring down an organization's effectiveness if they rely too heavily on competition.
0: Oh boy. Well, we're gonna have some fun digging into each of these right here. And so maybe we'll just sort of go in turn with three of those things you mentioned there. So first of all, with psychological safety, I was struck by, I first became aware of this term looking at Google's research on what made an optimal or high-performing team.
1: Yep, me too. Project Aristotle was the name of it
0: it's striking. So Google, who really sure does want the best from people and invests big in order to make it happen. That was their conclusion is that this was the thing. And so as you define psychological safety there, based on the notion that folks can sort of freely say and contribute whatever that, you know, they think they need to without any number of spooky fears of negative repercussions. Could you maybe give us some examples? Because I think this happens all the time. Sort of yeah. the tiny ways that people get the memo that no, it is in fact not safe to say those sorts of things in this kind of environment.
1: Yeah. So Google's research was really interesting and, and they definitely found two key factors were at the heart, which was empathy and then also Everyone, it was called conversational turn-taking, but the best teams found the way to make sure everybody's voice got heard. But what was interesting is they were hitting on um, this concept of psych safety, and the original professor who identified it is Amy Edmondson from Harvard. And her research is amazing. I really recommend that if you have not yet seen her TED Talk or bought her book, Teaming, it's, it's really well worth the read. And she actually, she defined it. So I'm going to give you the the official definition of psych safety, which is it's a sense of confidence that the team will not embarrass, reject, or punish someone for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. And what what she found and also what Google found was that that's a real differentiator. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense, right? If we feel safe and we feel like we can take risks and make mistakes, that's going to help us do our best work and it also is kind of a measure of trust. So it's really a big differentiator. And I've seen that in every org I've gone into is psych safety is really kind of the
0: core thing. Mm, That's so powerful. And I'm glad that research has been done and also disappointed because I was beginning to formulate some similar syntheses, you know, in terms of, boy, it seems like a lot really boils down to what people share and what people don't share and why. And then they just, you know, took that to the very next you know, several levels of depth and research and brilliance with the psychological safety considerations. So I'd like to get your take then in terms of in the reality of organizations, I think it's much easier said than done. Well, yeah, just speak your mind. You know, I'm an open book or my office is always open. Just we want to hear your ideas. But in practice, that doesn't feel like that's the truth, Like there is that safety. And so what are some of the maybe little ways that leaders and collaborators undercut their psychological safety?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think we've all experienced that, right? Like, I think most of us have the experience where we knew we had it. And then we also see when we don't have it. And, And it really comes down to, uh, Not, you know, it's the unspoken stuff, right? someone can tell you they have an open door or they really Mm -hmm. want to hear their views, but the truth lives in how they really act. And when you go to them because you need the open door, are they available? Do they brush you off? Do they really listen? So... You know, we can have I've been in companies where they have the most beautiful values painted on the wall mm-hmm. you've ever seen. And in fact, thousands of dollars of art installations <laughs> espousing those values. And yet that's not how people treat each other um, on a day-to-day basis. So it really comes down to, and you're right, it's really in the hands of the managers and the leaders. They're the ones that create the the unspoken environment that creates psych safety. And and it's really about being available. Uh And truly being um, authentic in your openness to receive feedback. So, you know, managers and leaders, if they've got a lot of ego, they're not going to be as good at creating psych safety because they won't be as vulnerable and open to feedback or questions or concerns. Mm hmm. And there's this other thing called collaborative intelligence. There's actually a book by that name, which is also really good, which is the people who, you know, there's people who have strengths in this, knowing how to create an environment that allows people to come out and do this collaborative work. And oftentimes those are not the folks who are promoted into manager or leader roles. You often promote your strongest individual contributors who were able to on their own do really excellent work. Well, that's very different skill set than being able to create the environment where others thrive. And I think, you know, this this leads us to how do you search for and promote the right people? And when you put people in leadership roles, are you giving them the right kinds of training? And I I see a lot of organizations give training that doesn't really teach people how to create environments for others to thrive. And that's really the core of it. You can do it. It's totally learnable. It's totally teachable. um, But I don't see that as the focus in a lot of orgs.
0: Okay. Well, so much there. And so then you mentioned big egos and defensiveness kind of really quickly puts the kibosh on psychological safety. And so, could you maybe share, I'm wondering if there are maybe some non-verbals or very subtle things, like people don't even know that they're doing, that they're kind of unwittingly damaging psychological safety before it gets a chance to really take root and grow.
1: Yeah, so one, it's, you know, it's turning your attention to creating the environment for others. So it's really about, can you ask those kinds of questions that invite different views into the room? Do Are you constantly asking questions versus telling people what mm. to do? Um, so it's really about asking questions. And, and that means being able to ask a variety of ways so that you hit different people's preferences or personalities. And then, you know, once people are speaking, it's what you do with that information. You know, do you... If you feel like you're being challenged, do you shut it down or do you say, Tell me more? Mm -hmm. Or if someone offers a criticism, do you say, No, that's not true? Or you say, Thanks for the feedback? And so it requires a level of vulnerability um, on the behalf of the leaders and managers to really, you know, receive a, create it and then receive it once you've created it, because you can do a great job asking all the questions. But mm-hmm. the minute something somebody says something tough, if you if you smush them down, um, everyone in the room goes, oh, guess we're not doing that. You know, guess it. I guess it's not really safe to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the walking the talk part. And I think I think a lot of managers and leaders are capable of it but they are so busy trying to crank out their individual contributor workload, which didn't go away when they got promoted, um, that they don't put enough time and attention into how vital this environment is to create.
0: Mm, Excellent. And final point on psychological safety, conversational turn-taking, any best practices you recommend to do that well?
1: Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that It's about making sure that everyone gets to contribute. Right. So inherent in that is this idea of like everyone on the team has something valuable to add. And if we miss somebody, we're not going to be as strong or as good um, as we will be if we hear from everyone. So then it's about how do you how do you do that? Some groups do it by making it every meeting you hear from everybody. Other groups do it by over the course of a couple weeks, there's lots of opportunities and everyone gets heard. That really kind of comes organically from the group. But the groups that have psych safety, and some of them kind of build it inherently, but if you're trying to intentionally build it, it's really about, you know, making sure that you're hearing from everyone. And so this requires awareness,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? You have to be tracking not only all the times you raise your hand and want to say something, but you're also noticing that a couple people haven't spoken yet and either holding back your own comment or inviting them hey Jill what do you think and um this also gets to some diversity and inclusion stuff because there are some some cultural differences and 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 we've been socialized in different ways of communicating that tend to make environments where um, men, for example, or people from Western cultures feel much more comfortable taking up that airspace and other folks have a deference and waiting. And if they're not invited in, they're not going to assert themselves in because that scene is inappropriate or, or impolite. So it's really about also having some awareness around um, you have to invite people, you have to ask people
0: in. Certainly. And it's interesting how all these sort of norms are unspoken. And I'm thinking particularly for junior employees, like they don't know if they're allowed to speak yet or not, <laughs> you know, unless yeah. there is an invitation or an explicit confirmation. Like, hey, as we go in there, I really want you to chime in about this. You know, if that's not explicitly articulated, you know, just roll the dice. Who knows what they'll do, but they likely won't feel great about sticking their neck out.
1: Yeah. And Amy, you know, Dr. Edmondson talks about this, that you have to, as the leader, you have to say things like, you guys, I'm going to miss something. I need your help. I need you to be the extra eyes on this. We need all viewpoints on deck. Really, really saying to be a good member of this team, I need you to do this to overcome the power dynamic that's in the room. And what's interesting is, you know, Amy studied it from a psychological perspective, but then I've looked at the neuroscience underneath it and it kind of goes back to that safety thing. Right. You know, in order to survive and belong in organizations that have a power structure, you then start to pay attention to how do you please the boss? what is the way that people get promoted or fired around here? And then you make sure you do more of the promotion Mm -hmm. behaviors and less of the firing behaviors or demotion behaviors. And so everyone's always scanning for that. And so we really have to, as leaders, we have to overemphasize the invitation to come in um, and and really be mindful of creating that environment.
0: Okay, I dig that. So, well, now let's hear about the second piece there, trust. How should we think about what's going on in the brain when trust is present or not, and what can we do to get more of that trust?
1: So I'm going to give you a prerequisite to trust first, and then I'll I'll dive into trust. Um, so first, there's entire parts of our brain that sort for belonging and kind of you know, help us figure out how to be part of a group. So our brain does this instantaneous scan of faces. And and there's actually individual neurons that are assigned to different parts of the face. So we can do this millisecond look at a face and quickly identify whether this is someone we know or don't know. Hmm. And then in the next millisecond, if it's someone we know, the memory parts of our brain light up and bring up You know, it's not conscious. We don't feel this, but we bring up what we know of this person. So quickly, it's like, oh, I have a history with this person. And then simultaneously, our amygdala is kind of reading is this person coming at me with intent to harm? So we're doing a quick body scan language thing, you know, a body language scan to see if someone's coming at us with uh, an attack mode. <laughs> and all of that happens in, in a, you know, a fraction of a second. And our brain is kind of making sure that we are safe. And once we pass all those hurdles, okay, I, I know this person and they're not coming to kill me, mm-hmm. um, then we can then bring up more information, which is, Is this, you know, so I've done the friend or foe sort. And then the next thing I do is kind of this me, we. Are we just individuals who know each other? Are we part of a tribe? And this tribe sort that we do is really powerful. But what's so fascinating is that we found that our, our, how we define tribe is really malleable. Meaning we don't even see race. So for example, our brain doesn't even see race until we're about five years old. Like the eye can detect, you know, can see something, but the brain doesn't register as a a difference. So that's why kids, literally, it's like, are you cool? All right, you're my best friend. And it's about why, if you've ever had children around five years old, that's when they start asking the questions around why why do certain people look different or why are people's hair different? That's when the brain kicks in to see it. And so what we know is our sense of tribe is kind of constructed by the people around us. And there's even studies that show that if a company says we value diversity, then issues around race or class or sexual orientation just really aren't as big of a deal in the company because the company has redefined how we consider our tribe, if that makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so just by saying it flat out, explicitly, directly, the mere statement in this case does make an impact.
1: It does. And of course, that needs to be followed by action. Right. So if they say that, but then don't actually act that way, that then we believe the unspoken. But bottom line, find our tribe is an artificial construction. And so we can construct it however way we want to. And that's why you can have completely synced up teams that have tons of diversity on them. And you can have teams that are very similar and struggle with conflict and trust.
0: Oh, that's so powerful. And it's so interesting how I'm really resonating with that, that in certain groupings of people, it's like, I just resonate powerfully. Like you are my people and I am your person, like on these dimensions, whether it's matters of faith or if it's matters of when I get together with some of my Bane colleagues, it's like all of us think about you know problems and optimizing them in extremely similar ways and if someone pulls out an app we all have the same questions about how they monetize it and the strategy and and all that so so that's really powerful and then tell me are there some ways that we can do some good moves to emphasize the tribal identity and get that working for us
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so certainly the messages that are spoken and unspoken around what we value and and who we consider part of our tribe is really valuable. And you can definitely play with we are we. So defining we be careful not to take it to us versus them. Mm -hmm. And you can see this a lot in companies or sports fans, right? In fact, some of the studies are done on sports fans around what happens in the brain when you get this real us versus them mm-hmm. tribal identity. And that can actually, not only the brain sees reward when your team wins, your brain actually gets a reward when the other team fails. And yeah. it turns on um, a disconnect, like we have less empathy for the them, um Than we do for our us. So some bad stuff happens if you play too much with intense competition, but having a sense of tribalness and we turns on a lot of good stuff. And so definitely leaders can play a big role in this. The other thing that I like to mention as a backdrop, though, is that we all consume a lot of media. And so our sense of our tribes is framed a lot by what television and movies shows us. And so, for example, it's still true that African-American men are way overrepresented in media as criminals and, um, you know, dangerous elements of our society than is true in the population. And so all of us have to be wary of this implicit bias or unconscious bias that we have that has been kind of fed to us around certain groups um, because it's been manipulated and overrepresented.
0: Mm. All right. So we got the tribe element, the, the association of similarity and belonging. And so you mentioned that that is one core piece of the trust pie. Yes. What else should we be thinking about when it comes to cultivating trust?
1: So, once you kind of have sorted that and you're like, "Oh, we're a we," then you can start building trust, and trust can actually be measured in the bloodstream by this neuropeptide called oxytocin.
0: oh, yeah, we had Dr. Paul Zack on the show earlier, yeah. so good,
1: yeah, so his research I would point you to his research, and you know, and he fact he can in fact, goes into companies and does blood draws to measure trust. Um, but what we know about oxytocin is that. It, it gets it gets magnified so the more trust you build the more the more oxytocin you have and then the more likely you are to trust someone so you start to get into this reinforcement loop that's really great and in addition we know that purpose doing purposeful or meaningful work with people also um, puts out oxytocin so like the sweet spot is you get to do really meaningful work with a trusted team and then you see teams just, just crushing it, <laughs> like they really are performing well. Um, but the thing about trust, and this is where I see it sort changed a lot in today's organizations, is that trust takes time to build. Mm-hmm. In fact, Brene Brown talks about it's it's like a marble jar, and you have to keep putting marbles in the marble jar. And when you have a sufficient amount of marbles in there, then there can be a conflict or a tension, and you might take some marbles out. But you've built up enough trust that it can withstand some stress. And what I see with a lot of organizations is we reorg teams all the time and we expect people to work with each other, particularly now remotely and globally, Mm -hmm. but we don't give them time to, to use their biology, to build psych safety, build trust, build these connections that would actually make them able to go into that neural coupling and synchrony that we need them to do.
0: Yes. Okay. And so then that gets me thinking and wondering if that is a reality, you know, there's one message there to managers and executives like, hey, maybe slow it down a little bit on the reorgs and the team reshuffles. Um, But if you're in the fray where you are being reshuffled and you ideally would like trust in a hurry, it takes time to build. So is there anything we can do to be intentional? And I don't know if the word accelerate is appropriate, but yeah. get the trust going all the faster.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it turns out that that there's two things you can do with teams that make a difference. One is team training and actually give teams some skill sets on how to build psych safety and how to collaborate and and some of this stuff. There's some how-to stuff they can learn. And then there's team building, which is giving teams time to get to know each other. And if you spend a little more time on the front end of that with the group then you fast track. So, so teams usually come into peak performance with each other in two to three years. Mm. But if you front load some of these things and you pay attention to the, the neuroscience of it, you can fast track them to six months getting to peak performance. Um, So I think what it means is, you know, yeah, we're going to reorg people rethink it, don't just do it willy nilly. Um, But when you have to build a team, spend a little bit of time having them do some team training and team building together on the front side, because that is not wasted time. That is not woo woo. That is not fluffy. (laughs) That is good stuff that will pay off later for that team to be able to get to peak performance a lot quicker.
0: Now, when you say team building, are there some quick do's and don'ts you might offer? Like I'm imagining, you know, ropes course stuff. And does that have its place or is that a poor use of team building time and resources?
1: Well, you know, I think the team building and the team training should reflect what the team has to do together. So if they're going to be working in, uh, you know, an intense environment and having to make snap decisions with each other, like a firefighting team, for example, or a group that works on an oil rig. um then yeah the more intensive you want the team building to eventually help them get to this state of of trust and working with each other but if you're a group of knowledge workers and you're working on some electronic projects together then it's really about building trust enough to the level that you know each other um you know enough about each other so there's some just good old-fashioned getting to know you kind of stuff Mm -hmm. that opens up a little vulnerability and and starts that psych safety on its way and then some understanding of best ways to communicate and how do we clean it up if we have a miscommunication or a conflict putting those things in place um, can really make a difference so i would say the team building and the team training should mirror Work that they're doing. So you don't have to haul a bunch of computer guys out on a ropes course, although Mm -hmm. I'm sure they would do that. They Mm -hmm. would enjoy that. Um, But you'd want to spend some time helping them figure out how to do that work really effectively and mirroring that.
0: Okay, got it. And I wanted to touch upon the point you mentioned when it comes to in this world of remote teams, that's kind of throwing a little bit of a monkey wrench in some of this development and cultivation. Do you have any best practices or maybe even just an encouragement for the person who loves working at home? How should we be thinking about that game? Well,
1: yeah, so I am one of those people, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you and I have just met. And um, so, yeah, there's some things to do. One thing is to remember that biologically, we are wired to see each other in people, you know, in person, because technology and advancements have allowed us now to live all over the world and fly and do all this stuff. But when we go back to our, neon, you know, our, our hunter-gatherer selves living on the plains, we learned in person. So our biology is wired for in person. There's stuff in your brain that can read 3D micromuscular changes in your cheek, for example, that tells you, uh, an emotion has shifted and we can't even see that as well on a flat screen, but certainly we can see more on a video screen than we can on just a phone. And on the phone, we have more information than we do in a typed email message. Mm. So I always tell people, particularly early in your interactions, if you can be in person, great. Your next best thing is video um, and spend as much time on video as you can before you take away the visual and possibly don't take away the visual, keep the visual as long as you can. And certainly if you're on email and it starts to get wonky, don't keep going (laughs) on email, Uh, hop on the phone, get on a video because you're giving your brain more information that it can use to really understand and read other people's emotions. And, you know, and then the other thing that I would say is, you know, a lot of this neural synchrony that happens, scientists aren't really sure how it's happening yet. I think some of it passes between bodies in invisible ways yet on pheromone signals and electrical impulses that we can't quite detect yet given our technology. So I suspect that um, we'll learn more in the future that will give us more information about how to bring out the best in remote workers, but for sure spend time. And if, and if you're going to be working remotely, do a little bit more of that, get to know you stuff up front so that you build a little bit of connection before you just go into work mode.
0: Oh, that's so powerful. And Britt, one thing that this is really kind of connecting for me here is given all of these, you know, micro expression, millisecond facial things, and I'm thinking about the TV series Lie to Me right now, mm-hmm. actually, as you mentioned it, is that it's probably kind of hard to fake it. (laughs) I mean, if you don't actually care about people and what they have to say and their input and their feedback and their ideas, it sounds like you're saying we have all kinds of communication going on that may be even undetectable. So it's kind of like you got to really care is something I'm taking away here.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so interesting because all of us have had the experience where an interaction with somebody didn't go well, or they they ended up you know, hurting us in some way. Right. And most of us can go, you know, I had a little gut instinct or mm-hmm. gosh, there was that little red flag. And those, those things are your biology telling you, you know, Oh God, Oh God, something's wrong here. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, we've grown up in a society that really believes in, um, You know, being in our heads and analyzing everything, and I think that what I love about neuroscience is it's actually kind of bringing those two things in alignment. Like, yes, our biology matters, and there's 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 some stuff that happens that we can just feel, even if our if our you know our rational self, logical self, doesn't totally understand. And so, part of it is paying attention to that 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 you are getting a lot of information from people if you just learn to listen on all channels.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's an excellent perspective. And Brett, well, I think we could do this for hours and hours. But tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to highlight before we kind of shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things?
1: Yes. The last thing I would emphasize is, um, you know, we used to think that diversity was the thing to focus on, and I'm sure we've all sat through diversity trainings. But now the shift we're really paying attention to is this idea of inclusion and what it means for someone to feel like they're included or that they belong in a group. And and that's turning out to be super important, right? And again, it's because of our biology. Here's something really fascinating from brain science. When people are excluded, and they've actually set up experiments so that people are on an MRI machine and engaging with three other people playing an electronic game, And it's three people playing. And then Mm -hmm. it's set so that two people start playing this game, excluding the third person. So the third person knows that they're being left out of um, this this little game. And the brain registers exclusion in the same place it registers physical pain. Mm. So when we are excluded, even as something as minor as two strangers are playing a game that I'm now not allowed to play, we feel it in the brain as physical pain. And, and I think that that's really powerful. Like, I think we can all remember a time when we felt excluded and that can be a real place of connection is like, wow, I know what that feels like. And I know how hard that is. How do I make sure I'm, I'm creating environment where people feel included. And then the, the second takeaway there is that, um, it's such a strong connection, you know, opioids, work in the brain to stop physical pain. So even though you broke your arm and it still hurts, you can take a pain pill and you don't feel the pain even though the bone is still broken. So Mm -hmm. it it disrupts the pain signal in the brain so you don't feel it. Well, opiates disrupt the pain of exclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is what's happening is people get injured and end up on pain pills for legitimate physical pain reasons. And then as they're trying to come off of it, it's been masking whatever social pain they feel in their lives. And I think that's why they have a hard time weaning off of it sometimes is because it's also uh, addressing all the places in their life where they don't feel included. And I think more of us feel like we don't belong than we talk about.
0: Yeah. I think that's so true. And there's so many little ways it happens. I'm thinking of in some environments in which it's like, I didn't feel hardcore excluded, but I just definitely picked up the signal. It's like, oh, all of you people like each other more than you like me. Not that you dislike me or hate me or, you know, he's like, you know, Pete is forbidden to participate in this conversation circle, you know, Uh, but it was just like, oh, and it sure is unpleasant. And so I think that, you know, maybe part of this is, you know, kindergarten lessons associated with, you know, smiling and opening up your body language and, and asking people what they have, but do you have any other kind of best practices that we should bear in mind to keep inclusiveness going?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is to just be sensitive to it. I mean, I think one of the aha moments I had, you know, I'm a white woman um, and I'm an educated white woman. And one of the aha moments I had was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I've had moments in my life where I felt excluded, but I've had a lot more where I felt fine. And I can I can look to leaders and see people who look like me and I can um I can I can see police officers that look like me. There's places where I I feel a sense of safety, and I started to realize what a privilege that is. Um, that I wasn't counting, you know, that I was like, oh, the world works like this for everybody. So I think part of of inclusion is just starting to kind of realize the places where you might have privilege and where you might feel more included than other people do, and that doesn't mean that that you shouldn't start to tune into some things that you haven't experienced. That was a really big aha moment for me and made me more sensitive to environments of, huh, can I start paying attention to how another might feel in this setting? Not just how I feel in this setting.
0: Mm, Excellent. Thank you. So now, Britt, can you share with us a favorite quote something you find inspiring?
1: Oh, my gosh. There's so many of them. Um... You know, I still always come back to uh, that Margaret Mead quote about, you know, never underestimate the power of a a small group of committed individuals and what they can do. I'm not I'm totally mangling the quote, but it it, it comes down to like, you know, it's really the only thing that ever makes a difference is a small group of people speak up and say we need we need change. And so I, I always value that as a call to a call to action for all of us.
0: All right. And how about a favorite book?
1: You know, I read voraciously, so I have to say I'm I'm anticipating my new favorite book will be Altered Traits by <laughs> Daniel Goleman and D- Richard Davidson. They're doing a they're pairing up. Daniel Goleman does emotional intelligence, and Richard Davidson is like the guru on mindfulness and meditation. And their book is coming out soon, and I, I know I'm just going to love it. Um, another current favorite is Essentialism.
0: Oh yeah, we had Greg McEwen on the show. It's so good.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh, it's just really helping me stay focused in the midst of so many awesome choices. Mm-hmm. So that one's, that one's being really helpful to me right now.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's so powerful. And you're the first person ever to offer us an anticipated favorite book. I love it. <laughs> it shows you're really on top of what's coming through the pipeline. And how about, and this might be extra hard for you, but uh, if you had to choose you know, a study or experiment or a piece of research you know, that you have really connected with or thought about many, many times over, uh, what would it be?
1: You know, it, hands down at Richard Davidson's work on mindfulness. And he's put, I mean, this was a, this was a, a game changer for me. He's put, um, you know, Tibetan monks on an MRI machine and he's put civilians on an MRI machine. So he's really studying from a scientific brain science way, what happens. And not only does a 10 minute meditation change your brain, it changes it Permanently. All right. Ten minutes permanent change. And if you get into a habit, it's it, it, like the brain was built for mindfulness. It's like it has receptors in it that make it just function so much better. So it literally turned me into a committed meditator. And I'm a tightly wound person. So honestly, when I started re- re- reading this research, I was like, Oh, no, I have to meditate. <laughs> um, because I was so against it. But I'm I was, it was so compelling. I had to and I'm so glad that I did. It's been a huge change in my life.
0: Oh, that's cool. Well, let's merge favorite tool and habit then to hit the meditation point. So how do you go about doing that? Do you use an app or anything or is it simply pay attention to your breath? What do you do for meditation?
1: I have two favorite tools. Um, one is uh, Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey have paired up to do these 21 day meditation challenges that you can get on your phone. And they're they're literally 10 to 15 minutes, and then they run for a theme for 21 days. And everything I know about how we build habits and all of that, it's just like this perfect, sweet little nugget that I love. Um, so I have several of those on my phone. And then the other tool that I love, it's called desk yogi. Hmm. And it turns companies can buy it individuals can buy it it turns your laptop or your or your desktop station into a wellness station and so you can watch a fi- you can watch a 5 minute meditation right in your cubicle they actually have chair yoga <laughs> where you can sit at your cube and do some yoga stretches and so they've got all these amazing things on on wellness and it just turns your device into a wellness station and, but it's really bite sized and easy to do
0: oh thank you and how about a particular resonant nugget, something that you share, whether it's in your Linda courses or your books or your workshops, that seems to time and time again really connect with folks, getting them nodding heads and taking notes?
1: You know, the thing that I end up weaving into every talk is this idea that we're wired to do three things: survive, which is in today's modern day, that's like, can I have a job and make a paycheck, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how I buy the other stuff. Um, followed closely by, do I belong? Is there a meaningful community that I feel like I can bring my full self to? And then that we all hunger to become, that we want to be our best selves, that we all want to learn and improve and grow. And to me, once I understood that, I was like, you know what, that everything else comes from that. Everything else can be explained by understanding that's, that's who we are as a species.
0: Mm, thank you. And Britt, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
1: You know, I would send them to my website, which is my name, com, And please link up with me on LinkedIn. And I also um, have Twitter. So follow me in those places. And I'd love to connect. I'd love to hear from you.
0: Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be more awesome at their jobs?
1: You know, I would just pay attention. You know, we all kind of know what brings out our best self, like how much sleep you need or how much you can really concentrate before you need a break or, you know, what kind of manager brings out the best in you. So once you know that about yourself, go find it. And, And if you don't have it, it's not the right job. It's not the right person or the not the right role. So I really believe that we all slot into the, to the, to something that resonates with who we are and brings out our best. And if you don't feel like you have that, you just haven't found it yet, but don't sit there any longer and wait for it to show up. Go find
0: it. Oh, thank you, Britt. This has been such a treat. Thank you for this and best wishes for all of your speaking and travels and adventures. It's been a treat.
1: Thank you, Pete. And hello to your audience. I love talking to you and I look forward to connecting with
0: everyone. I really like Britt's take on saying, we really, really need this. We need all the viewpoints in here to be a good member of this team. I need you to do this. And I think that is so handy, as she mentioned, to overcome the power dynamic. And I think to overcome some of just like the resistance dynamic, like, I've got an idea in my head, but I might be kind of dumb and I don't feel like sticking my neck out and it probably doesn't matter that much. So I'm just going to be quiet. Like those little moments where we choose to disclose or not disclose. I'm thinking of Silicon Valley. Great show. There's a hilarious line where they say bros disclose, but sometimes we don't, we don't disclose because of that little bit of resistance. And I think that little nudge might be just the thing to get a collaborator to speak up and to get that viewpoint you need, which could save you from a terrible mistake or inefficient move down the line. So a nice little script verbiage tidbit I'm going to be adopting into my lexicon. Hope you enjoyed that and the other pieces. And again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we referenced here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep193. And I hope you'll push subscribe because then you'll hear from our next guest. It is Elaine Bennett. We are talking about excellent writing. She did some writing for Warren Buffett. Impressive. So she learned a thing or two there and she shares some of those wisdom tidbits. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.